Good morning, everyone. My name is Will. I am one of the pastors here at New Line Press. And uh, if you're visiting with us, thanks for worshiping with us. We are continuing along in a series called Encounters with Christ. And today we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. This will be God's Word for us today. Let me read this for us and pray that you be blessed by the reading of His Word. Starting with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was and whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. And this is God's word. You could go ahead and take your seats. Well, I'm not sure how many uh, formal dinner parties that you've ever been to, but they say uh, psychologically, sociologically, that the person who tends to sit at the end of the table, and I think this is true of board meetings as well, is usually the one who is the host or the one who's going to lead the time. You sit at the table because you're not really going to engage. You want to observe, and then you want to lead. But the person who sits in the middle of the table, that's the person who wants to hear conversations on both ends of the table and tends to be the one who wants to engage in conversation and be immersed into the community of what that dinner party is about. What I'm trying to do here today from John chapter 12 is to place you in the middle of this dinner table. There's probably about 17 of them. You have Jesus, you have the 12 disciples, you have Lazarus, and then you have Mary and Martha. And when you look at this encounter, once again, we'll notice that the encounter that I'm trying to invite you into discuss and dialogue here today is the last encounter that Jesus has before his death and resurrection, before what they call his triumphal entry. That's John chapter 12. And so it's a dinner party, and what I want to do at any dinner party is that you tend to look at different faces, and you engage in conversation with one of them. And that's what we're going to do here today. There are going to be four people that we look at really quickly, and we're going to look at their story and look at their encounter with Jesus. So first, we'll look at this guy named Lazarus. Secondly, we'll pan the room and move over to this lady, woman called Martha. And then we'll get to the main actress of the story, so to speak, which is Mary. And then we're going to end on one of the most famous disciples. His name is Judas. So let's look at these four people at the dinner party here today. First, let's consider Lazarus. And if you've grown up in the church, you know a little bit about him. In fact, this dinner party is actually because of him. Well, sort of, because it's celebrating what Jesus did for Lazarus, raising him from the dead, bringing him back to life, Presumably, he was dead clinically. He literally was passed away for about four days, and then Jesus brought him back. And because of that miracle work, 
they held this party to celebrate Jesus. And verse 1 tells us about Lazarus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, it's interesting. Lazarus at this table, he may have had the greatest testimony ever. He probably had the greatest testimony in the history of any sinner. Because the disciples, yeah, they probably had a great story. I was a fisherman, now I'm an apostle, I used to be a tax collector, now I'm a disciple, I used to be a zealot, but now I'm actually going to be a church planner. And there are miraculous, wonderful testimonies about Jesus speaking into everyone's lives. But Lazarus, he was dead for four days, and Jesus brought him back to life. What a testimony this man could have had. Now think of me with me about Lazarus. What do you know about this guy if you've grown up in the church? And if you're reading the Bible, you'll recognize there's actually not much to know about Lazarus. You don't know his job, per se. You don't know his background, his height, his looks. You don't know much about him. You only know the fact that he was dead and then he was raised to life by Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know this book written by this New York Times author, David Brooks, and he wrote this book called The Road to Character. If you ever read the book, and we mentioned it from the pulpit a couple of times, David Brooks wants to clarify for us really the importance of life. And he says, on the one hand, they have what we call resume virtues. And on the other hand, you have something called eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those accomplishments that you put on your LinkedIn account, things that you're proud about, the, thing, the, the things that the marketplace would embrace. Eulogy virtues are really more important because when you pass away, these are the qualities that you want to be talked about yourself at your funeral. That's what he tries to give to us in The Road to Character. In fact, David Brooks says resume virtues are those that are valued in the contemporary marketplace. High test scores, professional accomplishments of an adult. They're the skills that are met with bigger paychecks and public acclaim. Eulogy virtues, on the other hand, are the aspects of your character, your personhood. These are things that you want people to say about you when you're not around. Things about humility and kindness and bravery. Our culture and society, we exalt resume virtues, but David Brooks argues it overlooks the humbler eulogy virtues. But still, David Brooks writes, we know at the core of our being and human existence, eulogy virtues is really what matters in life. And what's the point of all this? What were Lazarus's eulogy virtues or his resume virtues? And I argue, actually, Lazarus, it was one and the same. What do you know about this guy? Not much. The only thing we know about Lazarus was that he was raised from the dead by Jesus. There's nothing else about him. In fact, his LinkedIn account, as well as his funeral, all they're going to say is that this is the guy who died, and he was raised again from the dead. He's one of the most famous people in the Bible, not because of what he did or accomplished, but because of what Jesus did for him. That his identity in life, what he's known for both in resume and eulogy, is about what Jesus has done for him. That's something spectacular. The lesson that we learn when you look across the table at Lazarus is to ask yourself the question, what do you want to be known for in this life? Resume virtues, eulogy. In the heart of hearts for Christians, it means we want to be known through what Jesus has done for us, what his work for us, his resume, his perfect work given to us by faith, that we are known through our identity and our purpose and mission in life 
given to us by our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Lazarus. Let's move over to the person next to him. I don't know if she's really next to him. I'm just saying this. But let's look at Martha. Now, Martha is the same old Martha, if you know the Bible, the same old servant. But that's a really good thing. If they didn't say much about Lazarus in the passage that I've read, this passage says even less about Martha. In fact, there's only two words in verse 2 that talk about Martha, and it says, Martha served. That's her gift. That's her thing. She actually embodies our spiritual theme this year, called to Christ and called to serve, because if someone had a gift of service, it'd be Martha. Now, the reason we know this is because I think when I try to put a timeline of the Bible together, this isn't the first time that Martha was able to show hospitality to Jesus. I think this is the second time. The first time, it was mostly Mary and Martha. That's back in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember that story? Jesus comes in. Martha is scrambling around trying to serve and put on her best dinner, her best show, her best plates and utensils. Mary sits at her feet. Martha starts to complain about this. That's Luke chapter 10. That was the first time that Martha served Jesus. Here in John 12 is probably the second time. The reason we want to look at her in this story is because she teaches a lesson about growth and about service. Well, how does she teach us about growth? Because in Luke chapter 10, as Martha was beginning to grumble in her heart, what does Jesus say to her in Luke 10 verse 41? Jesus says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. She was serving out of anxiety. She was serving really not because she loved Jesus alone, but because she wanted to perform for Jesus. She wanted to be able to manufacture a certain catering towards Jesus. But not necessarily, and sort of missing the point, if you serve with all your might, but you never sit at Jesus' feet like Mary, you're sort of missing the point. That's the lesson that Jesus gave to Martha back in Luke chapter 10. Friends, do you resonate with Martha? Do you want to perform? Do you want to put on a good show? Do you want to present a certain image in life and church? Does that stress you out just like Martha? Do you know what anxiety really is? Well, one perspective on anxiety is to look at that Greek word in Luke 10, 41, and the verb and the root of that Greek word means to divide and to separate. You know, it really, anxiety in one picture form is saying, my mind is broken into a thousand pieces. Does that represent you? You know, think about a dinner party. You know, you may have hosted people who are important, but Jesus, the Savior of the universe, comes in. Wouldn't your mind be broken into a thousand pieces? You think about what to do, the timing of it, what you're going to prepare. Will he like where he's sitting? Will he, what will he be wearing? What should I wear? What should I be doing here? A thousand pieces. There's this anonymous quote, and it's something I'm paraphrasing, that captures the heart of Martha in a thousand pieces. She says, I'm a simple, the quote goes, I'm a simple person, but behind this big smile are a thousand feelings. Anxiety. That's what she did. She was, she was serving out of this. But I like to think, and I'm pressing this a little bit more, because in John chapter 12, the second time that Martha serves, all we see here is really... Verse 2, Martha serves. She's doing what she's doing. You know, you know why that's a lesson for us? Because in Luke chapter 10, Jesus didn't say, Martha, you got to be like Mary. Mary, you got to be like Martha. No, Martha had her gift. She served, but it was the motivation of it. It was the internal heart reality of it. She was serving out of a thousand pieces. 
Mary in Luke 10 was singular focused and minded towards Jesus Christ. But now I think there's some time that's passed. It's the second time to host Jesus. Martha is doing her thing. Martha served. She wasn't condemned. I like to think that maybe she grew a little bit and still used her gift to be able to serve Jesus. But it looks like maybe, just maybe, if you think about it, she wasn't serving out of a thousand pieces. She was serving out of her love for Jesus. That's Martha. I like to think she grew from a thousand pieces to a single focused heart and mind, a wholehearted service. And friends, if you resonate with Martha, you're a thousand pieces. You're a simple person, but behind that wonderful smile are a thousand feelings. That might be you here today. And that's why there's hope for you, because if Martha can grow, so can you in her service. Let's move on to the third person. If you move over across the table, you move from Lazarus to Martha, and you take a look at the third person, and then you notice there's the woman of the night. This is Mary. Let's read about her in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's what Mary did. She is a picture of lavish love and devotion towards Jesus. Now, what's going on here? Now, this is, if you could picture this sort of dinner party, there's 17 of them. All of a sudden, I think that Mary got so taken aback by Jesus' love that it's almost as if everyone else sort of faded into the background and became a little bit blurry. She goes over to the cabinet or wherever she held the perfume. It's probably a family heirloom. And she takes this, and out of her love and devotion, this warm and intimate, delicate moment, she pours out the perfume all over Jesus and anoints his feet. And it was a lavish gift. Her discipleship was costly because it gave up the most expensive family heirloom that she ever possessed, an expensive bottle of perfume. Now, I don't, I don't wear cologne. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything about perfume. Maybe some of you do. You could really speak and resonate with this. So I don't know what expensive perfume is. Chanel number no. 5, is that, is that something that's still around? So I Googled it. The world's most expensive perfume, and it's actually a perfume called, and I'm butchering the pronunciation, but it's called Schumach. It doesn't sound like the world's most famous, but Schumach, created by the spirit of Dubai, in Arabic, it means deserve the highest. Isn't that so appropriate that Mary gave her shumak to Jesus Christ who deserved the highest? You have any idea how much this 500 milliliter bottle of perfume that you could use for both men and women, how much does it cost? $1.4 million. And to get it across, it's almost as somebody gets this shumak, brings it to Jesus' feet, pours out the entire bottle, $1.4 million. And you're thinking, this is absolutely crazy. That's what she did, anointed his feet. Now, what's interesting to note is that when you read the parallel account in Matthew and Mark, they highlight the fact that Mary took the perfume and anointed Jesus' head. That made sense because Matthew and Mark want to highlight that Jesus is king, and you anoint the king on the head. John obviously sees that, but John's focus is saying that Mary probably took the perfume, poured it on Jesus' head, but it's a bottle, put it all over his body, but John emphasizes that Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Why? 
because he wants to emphasize service. That's why one chapter later, you have the ritual with the disciples of washing each other's feet in this delicate scene. That's what John wants us to know. That's Mary, her lavish devotion. She saw that the most important reality in her life was this man named Jesus. And so you look over at Mary, and maybe it's just me. I look at Lazarus. What a great testimony. He's known through his resume and eulogy virtues what Jesus did for him. Then you move over to Martha and says she served with a thousand pieces. Now she's serving with single-minded devotion. And then I move over to Mary, and I'm watching this take place. She gets up from her chair quietly, walks over, and gets this $1.4 million perfume, lets her hair down, pours over the perfume all over Jesus to anoint his feet. It's almost as if the world faded into the background, and she takes her hair, which is a woman's glory, and she wipes Jesus' feet as a singular-minded, wholehearted act of devotion because she found out, finally, that in this world, the most prized possession and treasure is not going to be perfume, but Jesus Christ himself. I'm looking at Mary. If you're looking at her, you're thinking, if you're honest, what in the world is my treasure? What, is my, what do I value? Do I live a life that's costly for Jesus? And we're not even just talking about tithes and offerings. You know, that's just basic Christianity that we all need to work on. But are we willing to give up what we treasure the most in this world? It might not be perfume. It could be your comfort. It could be your respect. It could be your resume. It could be your bank account. Your fame. Paul Tripp talks about treasures And I'm just paraphrasing here. He says, if you're a husband and a father and you treasure your alone time, you treasure your alone time, you'll get irritated and prickly when your wife and kids require love and care. If you're a wife or mother and you treasure cleanliness, your family will become weary of your demands. If you treasure your money, they're going to be really stingy about giving it out for the kingdom. If you treasure being respected, you're going to tear people down when you feel disrespected. If you treasure love and marriage, you'll give up fundamental convictions in order to get married and to be in a relationship. If you treasure power and using people and directing vision, you'll give up basic humanity and you'll oppress people who are under you. If you treasure fame in social media and business, you're going to become narcissistic and focus on yourself to the degree that you yourself are your own savior. Mary, she treasured Jesus. All the commentators will make some version of this comment, and of all the people in that room, it might be possible that Mary, because she was at Jesus' feet and always at Jesus' feet, no, twice, remember, because when Martha served twice, Mary was there. What did Mary do? Martha served twice, Mary knelt, was at Jesus' feet twice, first time to lo- learn from him, the second time to devote herself to him. She's always at Jesus' feet. So the commentators will note this. Because she's always at Jesus' feet in the room of 17, she might have seen more clearly than anyone else. You want to have a bird's-eye view of your life? Get low by Jesus' feet. G. Campbell Morgan says this, I would rather be a successor to Mary of Bethany than to the whole crowd of the apostles. And you get his point. Obviously, we follow the tradition of the apostles and they're wonderful men, 
But the point in this passage is that she, he would rather be a successor to Mary than follow all the 12 apostles. That's Mary. What a miraculous hero of the Bible. I pray that we wouldn't just be like Mary because she's still broken, but we would learn the lesson of Jesus moving her heart to devotion and that we would be discipled because of Jesus, similar to Mary. Okay, we're going to end on a down note. Those are three wonderful characters, three highlights of Jesus' grace. So we're going to end this dinner party. You ever been to a dinner party and then it finally ends? Like, it's going well, it's funny, people are enjoying the food, and all of a sudden, two people get into an argument, and then, oh my gosh, this is really awkward now. And it ends on a down note. That's our dinner party here today. Let's move over to the next guy in the chair. Then you see this man named Judas, the betrayer. Judas, the embodiment of greed. Let's read about this guy. If you've never heard of Judas, this is Judas in verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he, he who was about to betray him said, why was this anointment, ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which, by the way, is about a year's salary, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So it's sort of like the treasurer. Now, you have to understand, when John writes this, he already knows the whole story. So he knows later on Judas betrays Jesus for 30 shekels of silver or 30 dollars of silver, 30 bags of silver. So we know that Judas is the traitor. So even if you don't grow up in the church, you know Judas. You probably know something about him. So he's the traitor. So that's when, when John writes about this, he puts these parenthetical notes. So, you know, so he's saying, Judas, he, oh, you already saw the seeds of his greed. That John's like, he betrayed him, he got 30 bags of silver. You see the seeds of his greed. It's almost like you see the beginning of this moment in which Judas begins to turn. Well, how do we know this? Because with the bottle, Mary sees devotion. Judas, he already knows the dollar amount. He sees dollars. Mary, she uses the bottle to express her love. Judas, he sees the bottle as a way to gain liquidity. Liquidity means you could buy that bottle, you could sell it, there's a market for it. He knew how much it would go for in the marketplace. Mary used the bottle to worship Jesus at his feet. Judas wanted to sell the bottle for his worth. Just as a side note, what we have possibly in this passage is a clue to exactly how spiritual apostasy takes place. Sometimes when you leave Jesus and you leave the church, this is a scary note as a side note. It shows us this is possibly how the beginning of quote-unquote losing your faith happens. The root of bitterness grows in Judas's heart. It begins to manifest. It festers. If left unguarded, if left unchecked, unmortified, undealt with, without actually engaging in spiritual disciplines, that one seed of greed could lead to apostasy. This is scary because Judas is one of the 12 apostles. He was with Jesus, but we recognize you could be an apostle of Jesus formally, but unless you believe in your heart, you could still lose your faith and not really be a Christian. You don't really lose it. It just meant you never had it. Do you know Jesus' Jesus reprimand when you know, Judas speaks up? It's so gentle. He just says basically to Judas and the disciples, let her alone. Let her alone. It's okay. She's going to save some of that for my burial because back then they anointed People who are about to die with perfume because their body would decay. Jesus is so gentle. He says, Judas, Judas, let her be. It's okay. Let her be. 
She, she has it right. You're thinking money bags. She's thinking discipleship. Let her be. And I like to think probably in his heart, Judas has held it in. And that one rebuke, let her be, let her be, is the beginning turning point of Judas from being an apostle to showing his true colors as an apostate. He was overcome by greed, overcome by materialism, overcome by money. So I'm going to end this sermon talking about greed, especially in our day and age and our culture. Brian Rosner, he wrote this book called Greed as Idolatry, and so I'm taking a lot of thoughts from this book using Judas as a real-life example of what Rosner talks about in Greed as Idolatry, especially when Rosner talks about a Western culture like ours in capitalist society with the stock market, crypto, and he talks about how pervasive greed is, and this is sort of his thoughts mixed with mine, but this is what I want us to consider about greed, myself included. You know, on Wall Street, these sort of old sayings, they go something like this, buy or die, talking about stocks, lunch is for wimps, or he talked to this one guy, Gordon Gecko. greed is good because it drives the economy and drives capitalism and drives capital returns. One thing about greed that everyone talks about is that it's universally understood to be bad. If I asked you, is greed good? Of course we'll say no, greed is not good. That's what we try to teach our kids. But it's universally understood as bad, but also equally universally devalued and not acknowledged. No one takes it serious. No one admits to being greedy. Don't be greedy has become trivial when your kid wants a second slice of chocolate cake. Or greed is actually trivial because they don't take that last piece of meat at the Korean barbecue, leave it for someone else. That's all we have with greedy, greediness. A retired priest once said, in all his years and all the sins that were confessed, never once did someone confess to him about greed. Tim Keller, he said once in a lecture I heard that when he did a Bible study in the early days of Redeemer, he did one on seven deadly sins, and he said that when he did the one sin on greed, it was the least attended. Even my 12 years here at New Life, I've never talked to any couple or any person who came to me and says, Pastor Will, I'm struggling with greed. Can you help me out? But we all know it's universally pervasive, universally wrong. The point is this, greed is everywhere, but it's been normalized in our day and age, hasn't it? So that even basic acts of kindness have been escalated to something that's unique and astronomical, even though it should be basic to common human society. You know, case in point, there was this guy named Aaron Feuerstein. He owned a textile mill in Massachusetts. It burned down two weeks before Christmas. Once he got the insurance money of millions of dollars, all the employees said, surely Aaron Feuerstein is just going to take the money and leave. But what did Aaron Feuerstein do? He did the basic common human thing, paid his employees as normal, and gave them a bonus and restarted the textile. Now, that's pretty exceptional, but the point is, is that because our culture is so greedy, this basic human decent act by Aaron Feuerstein has now been escalated to be something that is magnificent because he even got called by Bill Clinton at that time, invited him to the State of the Union, and called this guy a hero, although he was just human. Because what it should be normal is now exceptional in our day and age. Let's move from the culture. When you look at the New Testament, it's not just Judas that shows greed, but the New Testament shows the weightiness of greed. Because there's so many commandments about greed. It says, avoid it, watch out for it, flee from it, 
kill it. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says greed is idolatry. Idolatry was strong. So if you use the word idolatry in the days of the New Testament, it's not like you and me where we kind of flip that around. No, stop, stop idolizing things. In the days of the New Testament, when any, anyone said idolatry, it brought horror to the people. So when you say greed is idolatry, it's bringing horror to them. If you ask the Apostle Paul or anyone in the New Testament, describe for me the average non-Christian in the days of the New Testament, you would get a three-point sermon. The average non-Christian in the days of the New Testament, three-point sermon, this person would be idolatrous, secondly, sexual immorality, thirdly, greedy. It's a major description in the Bible of someone who doesn't know the living God. In fact, this one guy, Ambrose, talks about Adam's first sin, which we call original sin. Ambrose said Adam's original sin is actually original greed. When Paul says greed is idolatry, he's saying that the desire to acquire and keep for yourself money and possessions and material things is an attack on God's exclusive right to your possessions and human love and trust and obedience. Greed you'll find in the heart. It's an internal sin. It's a species of covetousness, longing for something that you don't have. It's less visible. That's why it's hard to kind of define. It's more evident in the long-term corrosion of your soul. It's a sin of faithlessness. Greed is the opposite of trust of God's provision, a grasping of security instead of resting in him. Dostoevsky in his book, The Idiot, said, everyone is possessed with such a greed nowadays. They are also overwhelmed by the idea of money that we all seem to have gone mad. Now, Rosner goes on, he begins to critique capitalism and the economy. Um, no, he says, like, we, we, we use language, even Oxford Dictionary, when it talks about the economy, it's a religious language. There's a devotion there. And he says, thinking about the economy, he's saying that we believe in the economy, we trust in it, we think it'll save our lives and give us happiness. We work ourselves to the bone to get money and purchasing power and resources. We use language that the economy and the capitalism will give us all that we need. Now, I want to balance this out just on a personal level. I'm not crit- I think capitalism's good, so I know that could be polarizing. I, work- I used to work on capitalism. I like capitalism. I like the strong U.S. dollar. <laughs> You know, I know there's discussions among millennials that capitalism really put millennials in a bad position, but, you know, I like Reddit and Robinhood, too. I like crypto. You know, I'm free for all. But I think at least, although I embrace capitalism, I think it's neutral, so you have your freedom to critique it. It's not capitalism that's going to be the issue. It's just saying that, know your context. This is the world that we live in. At the end of the day, if I put it very tersely, but saturated with love, we are all greedy in ways that we don't know because we live in such a wealthy culture and society, pastors included. We all see in ourselves, as you look across the dinner table to Judas, that's me, keeper of the money bags, calculating in our heads all the time, a tit for tat, a general ledger. We are all human general ledgers calculating all the time when in fact the true riches comes in the kingdom of God. So let's make that turn here. So what do you do about this if we're all greedy, if we're just open to that? Well, we look to Jesus Christ, don't we? 
is you realize that contentment with what you have is not actually having a number to say, once I reach this number by this kind of house, you will always want more. That's the problem with greed. It's never satisfied. The only way that you can begin to address greed is actually to take your life off of that scale and to put it on a kingdom scale to say that all the riches of this world are good. It's really good. You use it. It's really good. The Bible affirms this. Rich people, that's fine. You know, I said this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I, I love rich people. You can love riches. You know, don't take that quote out of context, but yeah, you, you can love rich people. You just can't favor them over those who are less rich. But you have to get your paradigm off of that perspective and that economic scale and say ultimate contentment and satisfaction comes in the knowledge of God who himself gives you contentment and satisfaction, who promises us true riches, whose goodness ought to be trusted more than money in the economy. Rather, the Bible directs us, you and I, to an alternative vision of riches and glory, which is centered on the cross of Jesus in his resurrection in the kingdom of God. The solution to materialism and greediness is not trying to say, I got to give more money out or that I got to make less money. All those things could be wise. But the solution to materialism and the prosperity gospel of our age is to be renewed in our modern mindset with the Holy Spirit so that the passion for the true wealth comes in Jesus Christ, in which Paul says, Do you not know that you are rich in Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? That the gospel is true riches, that you have a wealth of resources waiting for you in heaven. And you get a taste of it now so that you have the riches of eternal blessings in Ephesians 1 that makes you radically generous with your time and money and gifts and service and all that you have. Because God is a jealous God. He competes with money for our affections. He stresses the futility of worldly wealth. He bids for us to desire him to seek after the riches that money can't buy in this world but only offers as a counterfeit God. Kingdom riches are greater worth your reconciliation, your forgiveness of sins, the community in life. You, be, you can be content because you have a relationship with God that nothing else in this world can even begin to compare to. All throughout the Bible, spiritual goodness, godliness, spiritual blessing is promised as the true riches both now and forever in the age to come. That's why Jesus sits here as the man of the hour at this dinner party. And he says, I'm better than any eulogy or resume virtue the world has to offer for Lazarus. He's like, I'll calm your anxieties and heal the thousand pieces in your heart for Mary or for Martha. He sees for Mary, I'm worthy of all your love and your devotion so you could give the most expensive, costly gift and treasure for you. And he says to Judas in his greed, as good as this world is with his materialism, true riches can only be received and experienced and had in the death and resurrection of what I'm about to show you. You haven't seen nothing yet. It's what Jesus says, anoint my body with perfume. I'm here forevermore. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's the encounter that you can have. The true riches in Jesus Christ for you and me. I pray that we'll see this. I pray we get a glimpse of it, to taste it, that the Lord is good. Because when you encounter Jesus in this way, you'll be pushed out as an entirely different person like everyone at this dinner table. That's all I got. Let's turn to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you so much that we see Jesus Christ. I pray that by faith we see him clearly, to receive him genuinely, authentically, with crystal clear convictions. Thank you for Jesus. He speaks to all our needs. 
He speaks to every need at that table. We only looked at four people, but there are so many more. There are 11 more at that table. And there's another 500 at this church that we all can look to Jesus at this dinner table and see how he speaks into our lives and gives us something more. Thank you, Lord, that we could worship you in this way. We love you with all our hearts. We thank you for what you've done for us in the death and resurrection of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.